Well, hello, South Valley Community Church. Uh, good morning, good beginning of summer, and happy Father's Day. We are continuing our series in the book of Job, just on week two, The Voice in the Whirlwind, Doubt, Suffering, and the Wisdom of Job. And before we get started, just a little bit of review to unpack so we're making sure we're all on the same page. The book of Job is one of the most mysterious and puzzling books of the entire Bible. It deals and wrestles with some of humanity's most deep longings and questions. Is God good? Is God fair? How does the universe operate? Like on the basic, most fundamental level, do we get what we deserve? Do the evil people, do evil people get on with all the evil they commit without ever being punished? It's all these deep, deep issues that it's wrestling with. And it's doing it through the genre of wisdom literature. And for the ancient Jewish people, the book of Job is like the zenith and pinnacle of human wisdom. And what's fascinating is that it wrestles with these questions, but as we said last week, it doesn't give us the answers that we want. It's not concerned with the questions we bring to the table. A more positive way to put it is that God doesn't answer our questions and the questions that we think we need. However, he does answer the questions that he knows we need to have answers for. And so with that, let's dig in and kind of jump back into just the very first verse to catch us all up from last week. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So in the introduction, briefly, Job is presented to us. He's this amazing, awesome person. He's a man of character and integrity. He's said to be blameless and innocent. He has an amazing life. He's got wealth and riches. And it goes on to say he's got all these camels and goats and cattle. And he has a big, giant family. Everything is going right. It's a good man with a good life. And then we are transported into the heavenly realm, specifically the very throne room of God. And a character is introduced who in Hebrew is called the Hashatan. And we know that person as Satan, but in Job, Satan is not the name of this spiritual being. He's described with a vocation or a job description. Satan isn't a name, it's a function. He is the Satan, or what Satan means is accuser. So don't picture in the heavenly courts Satan as we know him in the totality of the Bible and revealed in the New Testament. Picture someone that's just the accuser, one who brings accusations. And what he says is this. He tells God, you have blessed the work of his hands, Job's hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And this is the brilliance of the book of Job. Satan, the accuser, poses a question. And the question is, is at Job and, and for God, but it's also for all of us. It's why do we do what we do? Why do you actually serve God? What is the root motivation for you loving God? The accuser tells God that Job only obeys because he is blessed. If you were to take everything away, if you were to take everything away from Job, make him suffer, then his love for God would disappear. 
It's a fascinating question because Job is about to have everything stripped from him. And the question will be, will he curse God? Will the accuser be right and prove that Job indeed will accuse God of wrongdoing? Now, last week we talked about how deep this question is because Job's going to lose everything, but we've lost small things in life. Or sometimes we don't even get what we think we deserve or something that we want and we're angry at God. Remember last week we talked about how maybe sometimes you didn't get something that you wanted and in your heart you can feel the bitterness to God developing. And so it's like, why do you serve him? Why do you obey? Why do you love him? And then we talked about how it's, it's even deeper than that. So let's say you don't actually curse God because you didn't get what you wanted in life. You don't explicitly curse God out louder in your heart. But let's say you develop bitterness or jealousy or envy. You have to probe that emotion and see where it goes. Because when you're jealous, you are saying, I think I should have what that person has. I deserve what they have. And underneath that assumption is another assumption. And it's the idea that if I should have that and they shouldn't, then somehow the universe has not given me what I deserve, what should be mine. But underneath that assumption, if you go deeper, is an accusation saying then that the one who runs the universe, the one who is in charge of the universe, is not running it appropriately. And underneath that, of course, is an accusation that challenges the very goodness of God. And that's what the book of Job is trying to get us to do. It's wrestling with the deepest questions that that humans wrestle with. Is God good? Is he good all the time? Is he fair? And if so, why does the world work the way it does? Now, in the story, Job loses everything. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 1, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we talked about how the image of a man is, is the image of a man who's lost everything. He is miserable. He has sores on his body. His wealth, his riches are gone. His children have died. His wife has said, curse God and die. It's the most miserable possible condition. But yet Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the narrator informs us that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And that brings us to the rest of the story for today. After this section, some of Job's friends are going to come and they are going to console him and talk with him. And this is how the book sets it up. Job 2.11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, Eliaphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nehamathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. Goes on, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. 
Job is in such a miserable condition that when his friends come, they don't even recognize him. And when they understand that it's him, they just weep and they cry. And for seven days, they lament with him. Now, this sets up the structure of the book. And for a few dozen chapters now, these friends of Job are going to wrestle with their assumptions about God and Job's present circumstances. And these three friends are going to be giving Job their advice or their wisdom, but it's not just their wisdom. They represent sort of the collective wisdom of the ancient world. What is the best wisdom the ancient world has to say about God and about human suffering. And they're going to bring it before Job and wrestle through that with him. Now, what's interesting is that the following chapters are all told in Hebrew poetry. In other words, the advice and wisdom that they are going to be giving to Job are fashioned by the author in, in, in poetry, in beautiful, rich, dense Hebrew poetry. So it's like the wisdom of the ancient world being brought in poetic form to bear on the present circumstances that that Job is in. Additionally, the question you are supposed to be wrestling with as a reader of this story is, is this wisdom right and true? I mean, these friends are going to be telling Job some things and some of the stuff Job is going to disagree with. Some of the stuff Job is going to push back on. And you're, you're supposed to say, is this actual wisdom they're presenting or is this foolishness? Which is important note for Christians because oftentimes the book of Job is quoted. And when the book of Job is quoted, you have to ask who is talking? God, Job, Satan, one of the friends? If it's one of the friends... Is the advice that the friend is giving actually true and right? Is it wisdom or foolishness? And I've seen again and again and again, well-meaning Christians quote parts of the book of Job that later God comes to correct at the end of the book. So as we go through this, you're supposed to be wrestling with this so-called wisdom. What is right and what is true about God, the world, and Job? So the first friend gets ready to step on the scene. But before he does that, Job laments in chapter three. He says, after, the text says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Chapter three is a lament of Job in this sort of, serves as a summary verse. And because Job is such a long book, that's how we're going to be going through the rest of this book. What I'll do is show you a verse of a section, and that'll serve as a summary verse to the entire section. And I'll kind of give you a synopsis of what each character in the story is saying. But right now it's Job, and this is a great summary verse. He says, cursed is the day I was born. Now think about this. Think about this. Why is Job cursing the day he was born significant? Go back to the very beginning of the story. How does the tension build? You're in the heavenly courtroom. There's the accuser. And he's saying, you take away the goodness from Job's life and Job will curse you, God, 
to your face, the text says. But what do we see? Job is still refusing to curse God. He may indeed curse the day he was born. That's how, that's how much suffering he is going. That's how significant the pain is. He's saying, I wish I was never born. Cursed be that day. But yet Job has not cursed God with his lips. After this lament, the friends step on the scene. Job 4.1. Then Eliphaz, the Tamanite, answered and said, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished or were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So this is Job's friend, but he's making an accusation against Job. He is saying, look, Job, you've had all this evil fall upon you. Remember, God is fair and just. Why would this evil come upon you if there was not how somehow sin in your life? Now, this introduces us to an important concept. The concept is called retribution theology. And essentially, retribution theology is this. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. If you do good, good things will happen to you. It's an assumption that's based off of an attempt to understand that God is good and that he runs the world with justice. And the logic goes like this. If God is good and he's running the world with justice, then those who do good will be rewarded with good things and those who do bad will be punished with bad things. Now it's set up in in like a super one-to-one correspondence ratio. So if you do good, something good will happen. You do bad, something bad will happen. And Job's first friend along with the rest of the ancient world, for the most part, had inherited some view of retribution theology. So when they see Job suffering, when they see him suffering to that degree, their first response is, Job, you must be innocent. What is God thinking? Their first response is, Job, what's the secret sin in your life? And Job's saying, I'm innocent. I'm blameless. I have no idea why this is happening. And that's, that's the summary statement of this first friend. Eliphaz says, there, there's got to be some secret sin in your life, Job. The next friend is introduced in Job chapter 8, Bildad. And he says, Job, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Again, this is retribution theology, but turned up a degree. Job's children have died. And what does Bildad say? Surely even your children must have sinned. That's why they're dead, Job. And in fact, maybe God's being merciful to you because you're still alive. So if you would repent from your sin, God might restore you. Now put yourself in Job's position. You've lost everything. Your wife says, curse God and die. Your children are dead. And now your best friends are there saying, your children are dead because they must have done something to deserve that. It's like, it cannot get any worse. But up until this point, Still, Job refuses to curse God, and 
he's still holding on to his innocence. Now, when you read all of these chapters, you're going to see Job is on a roller coaster ride. So there's times where he almost gets close to, to, to maybe doing evil, but then he pulls back and he almost gets close to saying this and he pulls back. But the point is this, Job is maintaining his innocence and wrestling through the implications of retribution theology. Now there's a pattern you're going to, you, you should see it now. What's the third friend going to say? The third friend, Zophar, the Nahamathite, answered and said, Yet if, you desert, yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hands and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. What is this again? It's retribution theology. There's an innocent man who suffered and everyone just thinks, well, God is good. God is just. This is how he runs the universe. If you were innocent, you, you wouldn't be suffering like this, Job. So clearly there is secret sin in your life and you're just unaware of it or you're not owning up to it. So now's the time, Job, repent. And so you could see the situation Job is in. There's a triangle that kind of represents the dilemma. On the top, you have retribution theology. On the bottom left, you have the claim that Job is righteous. And on the, the bottom right, you have the claim that God is just. And this is the way it works. If retribution theology is true on top, you get what you deserve immediately in this life, then Job's claim to be righteous is a lie. That's not true. Job isn't righteous. But if retributionist theology is true and Job is righteous, well, then maybe there's an accusation that is, is God actually administering justice? Is he good? Is he fair? And everyone assumed again that the retribution theology portion of true and what the, what the book of Job is doing, it's subverting your presuppositions, subverting your assumptions. It's coming in behind you and saying, wait, 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 wait. You were brought into some important information that Job and his friends aren't aware of, right? The reader was transported to the heavenly throne room. The reader knows Job is innocent and righteous. And the reader knows God is good and just. So maybe this retribution theology is the problem. The way we understand the dynamics of how the world operates. See, that's the brilliance of the book of Job. It invited you into the heavenly throne room so that you get to know things that Job and his friends don't. Job is innocent and God is good. And so it's wrestling with, it's, it's, it's pushing at the foundations of this thing called retribution theology. And so where it ends for this section is Job saying, I need to stand before God. And he uses like court language, law court language. Like I, I, I want to go on trial before God. I want to present my case. And even in that, Job's terrified because he knows how can a man present a case of innocence to God? God is perfect and blameless. So no matter what Job does, he feels horrible and terrified, but he's still claiming, I, I, 
I need to go before God. If there was a mediator, if there was someone who can go before me and, let, and tell my side of the story to God. And that's how the, that's how the, the story and the language is, is, is working. Okay. Now, you may be saying, how could these people believe in retribution theology? Like, we, we all know that, that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Okay. You may say stuff like that, but the default operating system of not only the ancient world, but the modern world is retribution theology. You may know better because you have the, the rest of the Bible, but I'm telling you on an emotional level, your default operating system works just like retribution theology. Some of you have, have gone through some horrible things and you immediately, immediately said, God doesn't love me. God doesn't like me. God is punishing me. Or maybe God isn't good or God doesn't care. Or you lose something here and you say, why is God punishing me? Or maybe you actually did do something wrong and something bad happens and you immediately go, that, that has to be because I'm being punished. Or you did something good and maybe something works out in life and you, you pat yourself on the back because you think God is clearly rewarding me for my good behavior. Now, let me be clear. There are times when God rewards and there are times when God punishes. But what Job is trying to get us to understand is that it doesn't always work like that. Because of sin and brokenness and the fall, there are things that happen to you in this life that aren't necessarily driven by an exact one-to-one -one blessing, curse, reward type of retribution theology. Now, this is so ingrained into the way people operate that even though the people of Israel had the book of Job to challenge this understanding of the world, thousands of years later, they're still running off this default operating system. So in John 9, Jesus is on his way and he sees someone who is blind from birth. And listen to what his disciples say in verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see their understanding of the universe, the understanding of the way the world works? They see someone who's born blind, and they don't attribute that to the, the brokenness of the world, the fall. They don't, they don't attribute it to this or that. They, they just go, oh, this, this, this kid was born blind. Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? It's a horrible way to look at the world. Someone is born with, with some type of problem and you just say, well, well clearly God gave him to that as, as a curse for some type of wrongdoing. What does Jesus say? John 9, 1, 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. We don't know the inner workings of the will of God. And this is, this is what's problematic, is we want to know the inner workings of God. And even worse than that, we actually think we could understand the inner workings of the will of God. Oh, just tell, it how, tell us how it works, God. Tell us how it works. 
as if a finite human mind could understand the inner workings of the will of the infinite one. Jesus says, this is done for the will of God. So God's glory can be displayed, but you, you, you don't understand that. But that's why retribution theology is so tempting, is it's easy to understand. It's super easy to understand. Something bad happens, it's because you deserved it. Something good happens, it's because you deserved it. And as we work through the rest of the book of Job, we're going to see those assumptions and presuppositions challenged. All the while, God will maintain his goodness. He will maintain his justice. But he will reveal, especially when he shows up in the whirlwind, that the universe is far more complex than some simple theology that finite minds can understand. But there's always going to be a temptation. There's always going to be a temptation. And this, what, this is what makes the news of the gospel such good news. Is it, it says retribution theology is not true. And it's good news that it's not true. Why? Because if we got what we deserved all of the time, that would be very bad news. If collective humanity, if we actually got what we deserve from a holy, perfect, just God immediately, always, that's bad news. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the exact opposite. We don't get what we deserved. We get what someone else deserved. See, oftentimes you can ask questions like, why, um, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? But in, in, in a biblical sense, there's only been one person who has been perfectly blameless, perfectly innocent. And so no one truly is ever perfectly innocent and perfectly blameless and has some bad things happen to them. There's only been one person who's been perfectly innocent, perfectly blameless, and then had evil done upon them. And that person volunteered for that. Jesus is the perfectly innocent, perfectly blameless one. And he volunteered to suffer so that sinners like you and I could receive something we did not deserve. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ adopted into the family of the Father. And so the gospel is the antithesis. We get something we did not deserve or did not earn, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness. And while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so this gets to the heart of our understanding of ourselves and our identity. You may feel like, you know, this bad thing's happened in my life because I'm such a bad person or this bad thing happened because God doesn't love me or God doesn't care. I don't understand this, so clearly God's not paying attention. And that's not the way it works. Our finite minds cannot understand the infinite wisdom and will of God. But what the gospel says is that even though you can't understand this and that, or this over here, or this right here, you can understand this. We were sinners, and yet Christ still died for us. And that should inform your identity at the most core and fundamental level. You, no matter what good things happen to you, 
no matter what bad things happened to you, no matter what childhood you had, no matter what parents you had, no matter what you did in high school, no matter what you did yesterday, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So thank God retribution theology is not true. Thank God the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And as we go through the rest of the book of Job, we're going to see all of these dynamics at play in that work. God is good and he is just, but you don't always get what you deserve in the immediate. And that's why Christians also simultaneously have a hope that one day in the end, God will right all the wrongs of this world. Justice will be served. But we long and wait patiently for that day. We're going to transition into worship and the reciting of the Lord's Prayer. And as we recite the Lord's Prayer, focus on this component. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians pray that God's kingdom will come ultimately and fully so that all wrongs will be righted. But in the meantime, we exist in the messiness and brokenness of the world. But in the midst of the messiness and brokenness of the world, we cling to gospel truth that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So please stand as we recite the Lord's Prayer. Hi, church family, foster family here. Please join us in saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 